We're continuing our series through Revelation, uh, and today we're going to be looking at two churches, uh, the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, um, who are experiencing some of the same uh, circumstances. So if you please uh, would rise as we hear God's word to us, taken from uh, Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11, and then we're going to be jumping uh, to chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. John writes, and to the angel of the church, uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear that you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as your word goes out to us and as your spirit moves in our hearts and our minds that we would be encouraged and lifted up knowing your deep love for us that you've shown in Jesus. Continue to remind us of this, Lord, even today. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of my favorite uh, war series is the HBO series, Band of Brothers. It's a series about, uh, it's a true story about a company called Easy Company that's part of the 101st Airborne in World War II. And the series follows the company through the entire war from start to finish. And there's a portion of uh, the narration, they come to the Battle of the Bulge, which of those of you who don't remember from your history lessons, this is, was the final advancement 
of Hitler and the Nazis to try to separate the Allied powers as Hitler uh, advanced into Western Europe to try to conquer uh, the continent. And so Easy Company finds themselves in the Arden Forest of Belgium trying to stop the advancement of the Nazis. Now this was done during the dead of winter, so super harsh and terrible conditions. On top of that, other than the trees and the foxholes they dug, there was really no protection from the artillery fire and mortars and enemy fire. What made matters worse is on top of all these harsh and difficult conditions is that the, command, the, the person that was put in charge to lead them was often absent. He was nowhere to be found. His name was Norman Dyke. He often went on long errands and in time of battle when it was all intense, he was, he was gone. He, was, he wasn't there. He was absent. And when he was there, he gave poor commands. He wasn't very direct. He was confusing. And one of the guys who's narrating uh, the event, he says, often the question that most of his men asked was, where's Dyke? And not just his men, but even the upper command, wondering where, where is Dyke? Where is this leader who's supposed to be there? He's supposed to be present and leading his men. And you feel that anxiety. You feel the the tension and frustration and confusion that these men felt as in they're, they're in this difficult and challenging situation with no leader. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, here we, we read of two churches that are experiencing some, some difficult circumstances, some real challenging, hard circumstances. They're being persecuted for their faith. And in facing all of that, they know who Jesus is. They believe in him. They've heard the gospel. They're trusting in him, but they've also been promised a kingdom. They've been promised by the Lord that I'm coming back and I'm going to deliver this world and I'm going to set you free from the the realm of sin and darkness and death. But they're looking around them and they're, they're looking at their circumstances and it doesn't seem to add up. I mean, all they're experiencing is hardship and pain and death. Where is this promise of deliverance? Where is this promise of this new kingdom we keep hearing about? And we also have to wonder if they were to ask that question, where is the Lord in all of this? Where is God? I don't see him. I don't feel him. All I see is pain. All I see is my friends being put in prison and killed for their faith. You know, and friends, as we will begin to discuss, even though this was thousands of years ago, you and I might be facing some of the same persecutions, some of the same challenges down the road. We have to ask the question, is Christianity worth everything? That's the question they were asking themselves. Is it really worth it? Is what we believe to be true really worth everything, even my life? Do we have it right? What we believe, it seems like it's so confusing. Look at the world around us. Do we, do we have it right? And where is the Lord in all of this? What well, we'll see that even when threatened with death, the church is called to hold tight to what is true and be a witness to a dying world. Even when threatened with death, 
the church is called to hold tight to what is true and be a witness to a dying world. The first thing I want to talk about is the fear and anxiety that can come when, when the heat is turned up, when our circumstances get challenging, when we're facing that pressure from the world to give up these things that we believe. The second thing is what is the truth that we're holding on to? What is that thing that is true that we believe that we're holding on to? And third, we're going to look at our call to hang tight and to be a witness to a dying world. So first, the fear and anxiety that can sometimes cloud our vision. Uh, These two churches are the only two churches of the seven where Jesus doesn't have any qualms with them. So the text here is full of encouragement and affirmation, whereas the other churches, there's often an issue and a problem that Jesus wants to address with them. With these churches, he's encouraging them. That doesn't make them perfect. That doesn't make them you know, holier Christians or that in his mind, he loves them more. But we also, as we look at the text, they're human. They're facing fears and anxieties. They're asking these, these questions. And so Jesus comes to them because he knows their struggle. And first, there's the city of Smyrna. It's a wealthy city. It was second uh, to Ephesus of that region. It was also a city where polytheism or the worship of many gods was prominent and was, was practiced publicly along with emperor worship. It was, it was publicly practiced that people would offer sacrifices and pay homage to the emperor who saw himself as a god. And for a time, Christianity was, was protected under the umbrella of Judaism. The Romans accepted and allowed the Jewish people to worship and, and follow um, their practices so long as they paid taxes and didn't lead any sort of revolt. They can, they can live in peace. But after the Neronian persecution, new religions, there was a spotlight put on them. They weren't allowed to be practiced, which included Christianity. And so they're suffering persecution. And what makes matters worse is that the Jewish people caught wind that if they were to offer sacrifices to the emperor, if they were to practice emperor worship, there was economic and social gain because of that. They were welcomed by society. They they were given uh, these these positions and, and accepted publicly. And so the Jewish people who have the Old Testament, which tells them that only Yahweh is to be worshipped, were willing to give that up in order to be accepted by society. But on top of that, the Jewish people saw Christianity as a religion that was based on a criminal, a man who was tried for blasphemy. I mean, the person that they are they're basing their hope in, in their mind, is a blasphemer. Jesus, to them, was a blasphemer. And so they were willing to rat the Christians out to the Romans, which even further boosted their uh, relationship with them. And so the, the Christians are faced with this challenging circumstance where they feel hit from all sides. And one of the consequences of being a believer for them was poverty. Jesus tells them, he says, I know your poverty. Now, scholars might disagree, but overall, there's a general consensus that what that means is they they were poor. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their financial livelihood and stability because of their belief. 
because of what they held to be true and what they knew to be true, people were losing their jobs. Now think about the anxiety that that alone would bring. You know, some of us know full well what that's like. You know, living from paycheck to paycheck, barely making ends meet, maybe even being unemployed and the the fear and anxiety that can come with that. How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to provide for myself and the people that God has put in my life? These must have been questions that have been going through their minds as they're experiencing this. But what makes matters worse is that Jesus comes to them and he doesn't tell them what we might expect. You know, we might expect Jesus to come and say, you're going to get a better job. You're going to be even more financially supported. You're going to be more successful. Just, just wait for it. He doesn't tell them that. He actually tells them that for some of you, the circumstances that you're experiencing are going to appear worse. He says in verse 10, he says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you might be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Now, I want to talk about a few things of this text. First, what does he mean by 10 days? There's all kinds of of disagreement when John uses numbers in Revelation. Entire systems of doctrine have been written up by, by the numbers that we will find further in Revelation. But something we have to remember is, is what John is doing in the visions, in the metaphors, in the pictures, and in the numbers he gives us. Is he communicating something using using language and things that the people would have understood at that time to communicate a broader and deeper truth? And at that time, the Romans, when they would put people in prison, it was only for a short period of time. It wasn't life sentences. Uh, They would do that to wait and in preparation for the trial that was to come. And that's when the sentence would be given and there would be the uh, sentence dealt So it wasn't like they were waiting and keeping them in prison for a long time. So what Jesus means by that is, is that your tribulation that some of you are going to experience is going to be a short time. It's not going to be forever. It's going to be for a short period. It's supposed to encourage them that what you're experiencing isn't going to last forever. But the other thing is, and this is the sobering part, is that for some... For some of the believers there, the end that they're going to experience, at least in this life, is death. That's why he says, be faithful unto death. What he's saying is, is literally some of you are going to be killed for your faith. Think about hearing that news, how hard that would be to set in. And actually, in history, we see a man by the name of Polycarp, who many, many see and believe he was actually from Smyrna. And many scholars believe that he was actually there at the time. He's the earliest recorded martyr in history outside of the the characters of scripture. And so here we see a man in history who died for his faith. You know, so this really was happening to people. I mean, think about that. Not knowing if you were going to be here the next week. Not knowing if your friends were going to be here the following week to worship. So the tension and the fear, and it feels like, if you're looking at your external circumstances, it could easily feel like we're losing. Satan must be winning this battle. I don't, I don't see any sort of, of victory as far as I can see and experience. Circumstances seem so bleak and difficult. And what does this mean for us? 
Well, friends, even though our circumstances now are different, there's in some sense a a very real, real reality that you and I may not have the freedoms to worship and express our beliefs that we once did. You know, some of you are already aware of this, that at your job, you need to be careful about what you say, of how you express yourself and the beliefs that you express, because there might be consequences. It used to be that you and I could believe whatever we want to believe, but now things have changed. We're already seeing a a narrative that says you're free to believe whatever you want, so long as it doesn't offend me or others, so long as it makes someone feel uncomfortable, so long as it doesn't call people to change, so long as it doesn't ask me to, to give up what you say is destructive, but I see is makes me happy, makes me fulfilled and satisfied. And because of that, if you do say those things, there are going to be consequences. There's good reasons to believe, friends, that that future is closer than we might realize. You and I have been under the protection and freedom, and and it's been a blessing and enjoyment to be able to worship the Lord freely. But if we look at Scripture, often the reality is, is what Jesus tells us is going to happen, is the world is going to oppress us. The gospel is offensive at the end of the day. The gospel isn't a popular religion. So then, what do we do? You know, there'll be pressure during this time and already to give up what we believe. Just like the Christians at that time would have been facing the pressure, all you have to do is just offer these sacrifices to the emperor. All you have to do is just pay a small sum of money and just publicly offer these sacrifices. You could still keep your religion. You could still believe in these things. Just add to this. Make a little adjustment. You can keep your job. You can keep your livelihood. For some of you, you can even keep your life. And some of us might already be experiencing that pressure. You know, scripture is an old, ancient document after all. You know, those guys... You know, they were, they were misogynist and patriarchal. Some of the stuff they said was, was bigotry. So we're, we doubt and wonder, is, is it really true? And is it worth it? So that's the Smyrna church. But then there's the church of Philadelphia. Similarly, as the the church in Smyrna was experiencing oppression and pressure from the Jewish people, we see some of that same pressure that the Philadelphia church is experiencing. They were being reminded by the Jews who had the synagogue, which was understood in the Old Testament as the place where God dwelt and was worshipped. And they were telling the Christians, because of what you believe and practice, you don't belong to the family of God. You're not children of God. You're outside of God's family. And what makes matters more difficult is the thing that they were experiencing that Jesus tells them is that you, are, you have little power. And what he means by that is that their 
ministry, their public ministry, for whatever reason, wasn't having the effect that they were hoping it would have. Their voice wasn't as powerful in the public and it wasn't having that social um, effect. So there was discouragement. And so they're wondering, you know, this call to be a witness, this call to witness to the world, is it really having the effect, the feeling of being powerless you know, we look at our own lives. We as a church, as, as a church in San Diego, we're, we're trying to be that witness to the world. You know, we're trying to be that light to a, a world of, of darkness and pain and sin. But there's a, there's a sense in that where we might feel powerless. You know, how are we able to face these things in the world? You know, how are we really to make an effect on the culture? How are we really able to make a dent in this City, it seems astronomically impossible. But then there's a personal level that we might look at ourselves. You know, maybe you're wondering, I'm, I'm not a seminary student. I don't know all the, the logical arguments, and I can't, you know, defend scripture when someone talks about the fallacies that they see in Deuteronomy and, and all the contradictions. You know, I, I don't know how to enter into those conversations. So there's this. There's this sense and wonder, you know, I, I feel powerless. How can I change this person? How can what I say really affect them and transform them? You know, I, I'm weak. I'm, I'm, you know, I have all these issues and problems. We, we ourselves can feel powerless. And all this time, whether we're experiencing the tension and pressure of the culture or we, we don't see the fruit of our ministry to the world, it might seem like we're losing. It might seem like the church is losing the battle as far as we can see. And even all the while, it might seem like God is distant. You know, where are all these promises that he's given us? You know, I'm being faithful, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm coming to church, but I'm not seeing, seeing the fruit of that, and I'm still experiencing this pressure of the world. When are we going to be delivered from this? Well, the truth that we hold tight to is, is what's important. So as we face these fears and anxieties, we also understand there's a truth and reality that, that we believe and trust and hold on to. And we see that in this text. First, it's who Jesus is, and second is what he's done. First, who is Jesus? As he introduces himself in verse 8, he says, the words of the first and the last. You know, Jesus has used this as a title for himself already uh, three or four times in this text, in 1, 4, and in verse 8 and 17. And what he's doing is he's pulling from his Old Testament texts and prophecies talking about the Lord. And in Isaiah, when God often introduces himself, he says, I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. That's from Isaiah uh, 41 verse 4 and also in 44, 6 through 7 and 41, 12 through 13. Jesus is taking those texts and he's saying, that's, that's me. I am the one who's the first and the last. And friends, what does that mean? 
That means he's sovereign over all things. That means he's sovereign over history. That everything that happens falls, falls under his dominion and plan. Everything that happens. And what's interesting, the reason that this is repeated, already we're in chapter 2 and already Jesus has repeated this to his people because he's just gently reminding us. He's gently reminding them, saying, I'm the first and the last. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. I'm the first and the last. I'm sovereign. I have a plan. I'm the first and the last. Even when things seem like the opposite, even it seems like we're losing and Satan is winning. We actually see that in the text. You know, in verse 10, it says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And if we were to stop there, if the, if the verse was to stop there, we would think, wow, that's a, that's a victory for Satan. You know, he just pulled someone out and put them in prison. You know, how are they going to be effective there? He just took them from their family, from their livelihood, from their church. It seems like a victory. But the sentence doesn't end there. It says, so that you may be tested. What Jesus is saying is, is even in this bleak and it seems like a defeat situation of Satan throwing people into prison, it's all part of the grand plan. It's all, Satan is just a piece of the puzzle. It's part of God's grand plan for us. And that plan in, in, in this situation is to test and grow and strengthen our faith. That's what God is doing with them. That's God's plan for their life. Jesus being sovereign over all things is is reminding them, I've got this and I've got you. That nothing can take you away from me. Not death, not sin, not Satan. No matter what is thrown at you. And the reason we know that to be true is because of what he's done for us. Because even as he is, he is the first and the last, he's also the one who died and came to life. In verse 8. And in 118, he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, why, why is that a hope for us? You know, as Jesus talks about in, in 3 verse 11, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What does he mean by that? In the second death, we'll, we'll come back in uh, chapter 20, where it talks about the lake of fire that's for those who don't believe and for Satan and death uh, themselves. And it's when Jesus comes back and raises all people from the dead, both believers and unbelievers, and judges the quick and the dead, that those who don't believe in Satan and death will be cast into the second death, thrown into the lake of fire. It's a sobering truth because it's not only spiritual death, but it's also physical death. It's everlasting physical and spiritual torment for those who don't believe. But beauty and hope and grace that we find in this text is, friends, that's not for us. That as Jesus has died and was raised, what that means is not only did he experience that physical death, but he also experienced that spiritual death of being under the wrath of his father, being under the torment and wrath and judgment for our sin. 
And so as Jesus is the one who died and was raised, friends, you and I who believe in that have died with him so that this second death that's coming is not for us. And so that we know that our future does not end in death. That even if that were to happen, even if the worst thing was to happen to us and we were to be killed, it doesn't end there. Because he has the key of David. This is in uh, chapter 3 as he introduces himself. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David and opens and no one shut and shuts and no one opens. You know, this is taken from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David and he shall open and no one will shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. And so Jesus, in, in calling himself this, the, the one who has the key of David, he's, he's pulling that text, he's pulling that story in Isaiah 22, which if you read, involves real characters and real situations. One by the name of uh, Shebna, who was reigning and ruling over the house of Judah, he's pulled down from his reign and is replaced by someone greater and better and someone who's going to bring honor to his father and stability and blessing to those who are under him. Friends, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm that better king. I'm that better ruler who's come and is going to, is already starting to cast Satan and death into their grave. I'm the one who rules. I'm the one who's bringing blessing and stability to his people. And what that brings for us is the new kingdom that you and I are members of. As Jesus says, I'm the one who opens the door and can shut it. What he's encouraging the people of Philadelphia is that you are members of this kingdom. The door is open and you've been brought in. You know, listen what he says. Let's, let's look at it again in 3, 12 through 13. It says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. You know, that image of a pillar is that we'll be, we'll be fixed in the house of the Lord that we'll be permanently placed in God's house, that we are already members of that kingdom, that we are already citizens of that city, and that death and sin and even our very selves can't take us away from that. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter what rejection you and I might endure, no matter if we lose our job or not, there's nothing that can separate us from that. You know, being a father of a newborn, six weeks old, he doesn't know much more than eating, sleeping, and filling his diaper. Um, you know, and so when he's in distress and when he's, he's either hurting or hungry or maybe he has something going on downstairs, he cries, he whimpers. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't know that Anna and I love him he doesn't know that, that we, have, we have him in our hands. You know, we're holding him and comforting him as he cries. 
And I'll admit, you know, it's three in the morning and it's been two hours. Man, I'm thankful for my wife. I just pass him off. Uh, change, change of the guard. Babe, you gotta, you gotta take this one over. Friends, that's what Jesus does for us. That's what Jesus is doing for them. He's, he's reminding them, I have you. Nothing can take you away from me. And he doesn't pass us off. He stays with us. He remains with us through the crying and through the fear and anxiety and whimpering. Because of the experience we're going through, he holds us. And he's never going to let us go. There's nothing that can change that. So until then, as, as, as we remain in his arms and as we rest in that truth, we're to hang tight and be a witness. Jesus calls both of these churches to endure the pain and suffering that they're experiencing. With the Smyrna church, he says, be faithful unto death. And the, the Philadelphia church, he says, hold fast to what you have. You know, we are going to face temptations as they did to compromise, to give up. You know, lay down these things and convictions that you have. I mean, what's the big deal? You get to keep your job. You get to keep, you know, your livelihood. You know, you get to be accepted by the world. There's prominence and popularity. What's the big deal? You know, and here we see Jesus telling us to continue and endure. And at face value, it can almost seem like when he says, those who conquer, I will give a crown of life. It almost sounds like it's up to us. We have to muster up the courage and strength and ability to be able to face these challenges. Otherwise, we might lose our crown. We might lose this life that Jesus has given us. And so the fear and worry can set in. But that's not what Jesus is, is telling us here. You know, yes, there's a reality. You know, we don't know people's hearts. We don't know where people stand. And for some who, who do fall away and don't endure through persecution and difficulty and deny the Lord and walk away, there is some sense where they may never have been a believer in the first place. But it's not as though they had it and then lost it. And the second thing is, Instead of looking at our own selves, that's not what we're supposed to do. We look at the conqueror. We look at the one who's already conquered sin and death. We look at the one and stand with our leader who's gone before us. That's what we're called to do, to lay hold and endure because of what Jesus has done. It's not to muster up our own strength. It's to constantly remind ourselves and rest in this reality of what Jesus has done and who he is. And we do that by coming to church, by hearing God's word to us, by being reminded as we, we come with all our fears and screams and anxieties for Jesus to say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I have you and I have a plan for you. It's going to be okay. When you and I come and take the bread and wine, what Jesus is doing is he's ministering to us and reminding us and loving us and telling us it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. No matter what happens and what you experience, you're mine. There's nothing that can take you away from that. And that's why we stress community groups. We, we want to 
get these, these groups together in order to gather us together so we can do that for one another. We can encourage each other as we're burdened and afraid of what's coming. We can encourage each other to say it's going to be okay. God has you. It's going to be okay. And then we're called to be a witness. So as we rest in that and understand that to be true and and lay hold of that reality, Jesus is also calling us to be a faithful witness to the world. As the Philadelphia church, there's there's themes as as we read the text that they are supposed to be witnesses to to the world. And what's interesting is we read in verse 9 when uh, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You know, what does he mean by that? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, there's, there's prophecies that as Israel is, is the people of God, the foreigners and the Gentiles will see that and will come and believe. But what's interesting is, is there's a reversal here. You know, here they are, the, it's, it's the Gentiles who believe, the Gentiles that are people of God. And it's the Israels and, and the Israelites in this context who are in the synagogue of Satan. You know, they couldn't be further from the Lord. So there's an element that there's vindication here. And it's true, God is going to come. And when he does, everyone, believer and unbeliever, is going to bow. And is going to understand, finally, they'll, they'll see and know who the Lord is. But for those who didn't believe, even though they're aware of that, there'll still be judgment. So there is an element of, of, of vindication. God will bring justice to their oppressors. But there's also an understanding, especially if you look at Isaiah 60, verse 11, it says the gates are open to foreigners. The gates are open to these people that are seen as enemies of God. So even in this context, as they're being oppressed and pressured by those who call themselves children of God, they're called to go out and witness to them. They're called to open the doors, to bring them in. And friends, that's what you and I are called to do. As we labor and and endure whatever pressures the world throws at us, we're to continue to love and minister and show people the open door that Jesus has opened for them. We're to show people the light of the kingdom in a dark world. You know, you and I have been put in all sorts of places and contexts where we're able to do that in work, in family, in your community, in the neighborhood that you live in. You know, a lot of times when we think of evangelism, we think of, you know, you and I going out in the street and stopping anyone we see and just telling them about Jesus, which is there are some of us that might be gifted in that. And some of us, the Lord uses us in that. But a lot of times it's just relational. It's inviting people into your home. It's loving them and encouraging them and then eventually telling them with your mouth, with your words about Jesus. Telling them about the grace that you've received and that's for them. That's what God is calling us to do in this city and in the context that we live in. And some of you are already doing that. Some of you are already opening up your home and opening up your space and reaching out to those who are hurting. But let this be a, a call for us, and maybe that's something you and your spouse can be praying about. 
Who are the people that God's brought into your life? Who are the people that don't know the Lord that are in your life? In what ways can you reach out to them? What ways can I reach the community I'm in? What ways I can reach my neighbors? And be thinking about and praying about that. Friends, know that no matter what happens, no matter what you and I experience, even if we're threatened with death, that God has us. Nothing can take us away from that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our anxieties. You know all our fears. And yet you love us and you hold us. And you accept us in your presence. Not because of what we've done. Not because of how strong we might be or how strong our faith is. Because of what your son has done. We stand on the finished work of the conqueror of death and of sin. Lord, as we wait for you to come, as we wait for you to return and deliver us from this life of pain, of death, and of sin and suffering, that we would wait with hope, that we would wait rejoicing, and we would show people the door that's open for them, that we would bring people in, that you would use us to be lights the communities and places we find ourselves in. You would give us boldness and strength to tell others about you. Be with us for the rest of this service, we pray. And hear us, Lord, as we pray the prayer that you taught your disciples.